I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. It's kind of one of those weird days, right? It's a holiday weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Canada. In Canada. It's a... Poor Americans have to work. On the Good Friday? Yep. Do they get Easter Monday? Nope. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. This is new news. Yeah. Um, yeah, in certain places, in, in certain governmental places, it's a five-day weekend. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a long one. It's that final swing over the hump before it gets to be summer. It's one of the few, no, actually, no, not one of the few. I find that because, you know, primarily... In terms of our reach, we are North American. Obviously, I'm very Canadian or I'm Canadian. And so we do our Canadian content and we observe a Canadian calendar. But this comes up in the work, the days that you can't take off and the days you can take off. Um, Good Friday is one of those days where in Canada, it's observed as a federal holiday. So that is our policy. We take it off. But um, there are times when, what's a good example? For instance, um, we have in Canada a holiday in August, in most of Canada. In some parts of Canada, the civic holiday is not observed. Right. It's otherwise known as my birthday. It's not my birthday, but it falls often enough. My birthday is near the beginning of August and it often falls on my birthday or my birthday weekend. Yes. It's a Monday, typically. Yeah. The first Monday in August. And it is not a holiday in the U.S. So I, the Laney gossip is always in action. Right. Um, the same goes, oh, in May, I wish, man, I wish we could get it together that our Victoria Day, which is uh, a holiday, also a Monday. Well, it's May, Victoria Day is May the 24th, which is for Queen Victoria's birthday. Right. Right. But it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel as though when we were kids, yeah. it was celebrated on May 24th. Uh, Come without fail, yes. right? And then they started moving it to be next a to long a weekend. weekend. Yes, right. So, uh, and to your point, the Americans have Memorial Day. That's right, right nearby. But it's never the same. It never corresponds it's, for some reason. I just wish we could get it together. Like, can we make like can we make it in North America so that Memorial Day and and the Victoria Day weekend holiday are the same? Because it works out that. We don't go dark on Victoria Day holiday, and we still have to work in Canada on Memorial Day weekend. Right. Yeah. Um, There are some places where it gives a nice cushion, though. One of my favorite things, in, uh, especially in the entertainment business, is that there's a real push uh, in the fall for things. Everybody wants to get things done before Christmas, obviously, before there's a big holiday. But often you'll be busting your ass and really crazy on a deadline. And then somebody says, you know what, though? It's American Thanksgiving, so don't worry about it. And you're like, oh, right. Yeah. Starting on the Wednesday of that week, but maybe really the Tuesday, nobody cares. 
they're traveling, they're meeting their families, they're whatever. And so it's a nice little secret catch-up week sometimes for Canadians to just uh, get things done. In certain industries. In certain industries or if you're working with people in the U.S. We certainly don't observe it here. But if you're waiting for answers from Colorado or you need to, I don't know, talk to your supplier in Greenfield somewhere, Greenfield, Connecticut, there must be one of those. Uh, It can be a nice little, little avenue. Um, I am actually celebrating the Easter weekend and the confluence of, of the world on Canada. I'm going to see Come From Away tonight. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The big, I heard, lucky for you getting tickets because like they have, they're sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. Well, if you have uh, read me on Lady Gossip talking about musical theater, you'll know that I have a, like a secret musical theater expert friend mm-hmm. uh, called uh, Vance, H. Vance Hughes. Uh, he goes to about, mm, I would say, 150, 200 shows a year. Yeah. Uh, and he's amazing. And he hooked me up with some tickets because I would not have been able to do it on my own. Uh, he knew the channels to, I bought them, but to, yeah. to get them, get my hands on them. So for anybody who doesn't know, Come From Away is about uh, what happened on September 11th when all kinds of planes were sort of suspended in airspace because nobody knew what was going on. And so they landed them in Newfoundland uh, for the duration and sort of what transpired after that. And I'm kind of excited because beyond that, I don't really know anything about the show. I don't know the songs, which is unusual for me. Right. Uh, I don't know the stories. I'm just waiting to, to find it out. And of course, we should mention, like, it was Tony nominated. Did it win any? I think it won one. And Canadian written and conceived mm-hmm. uh, from actually out of Sheridan College, out yeah. of a workshop there. So yeah, no, it's a huge Canadian story and uh, yeah, very, very exciting. Have you ever, like, ha- has it ever happened for you, your your merging of the things that you love so much? Because you are, you love, you love, love, love Toronto. So it was like conceived and workshopped in Toronto. You love, love, love Lin-Manuel Miranda. So have, has there been like some sort of uh, come from away Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, crossover? Has he like sang one of the songs? Has he tweeted about something? I'm sure he has and I'm sure he's gone. Uh, <laughs> I love how you say that. I'm sure he has, and I'm sure well, he's look, gone. I don't keep up with him, but I found recently I had to clarify uh, for uh, some of our friends, for our friend Michelle, uh, who was like, oh, you know, I don't know, she saw him on Twitter or something. Is your heart beating? Here's the thing. I don't – it's not like a romantic crush on this man. Right. It's not even a talent crush, which is a phrase we all like to use sometimes. I said to her – I feel about him the way I think kids feel about Santa Claus. <laughs> right. Like, I think he's magic. Yeah. And I want to be around the magic, obviously, but yeah. I also don't want to, you don't, you don't want to peel back too much of the curtain. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so I'm not an obsessive who catalogs each of his tweets oh. or whatever. No, I know about his work. <laughs> Right. His stuff. You're a little like Dorothy Kearns Goodwin about him. You're a little well actually about him. I mean, I know (laughs) some things, sure. Uh, I mean, this is a hilarious turn, but I I currently have, I have a new text thread in my life. 
Right. Uh, and it's with me and uh, our friend's 10-year-old son because okay. uh, he has just discovered Hamilton and become a an obsessive in earnest. He has a blog. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes the only people who uh, can relate about something are a 10-year-old boy and his mom's friend. So that's where we are. Uh, he, too, I'm sure, thinks of Lynn as Santa Claus. Uh, I'm sure tonight I will find myself at 2 in the morning Googling everybody's reaction to Come From Away. Uh, and that's how I'm spending the beginning of our holiday weekend. So any, just to go back to our fact-checking, any Tony Awards? Yes. Uh, Come From Away uh, won the Tony for Best Direction. And that was this uh, this past, no, that was a year and a half ago. Yeah. Well, you, well, 2016, yeah. I want no, to say. No, no, 2017. Like, it yeah. was this past Tony's. Right. I get, I'm, I'm always confused at where we are in the month. Um, yes, Come From Away won the Tony for Best Direction at the last Tony Awards. Um, that was for Christopher Ashley, who was the director. Uh, and I, I'm not going to New York tonight. What I'm seeing tonight, obviously, is the touring company. Yeah. Uh, and not the original Broadway production, but uh, but I'm fairly sure that, uh, you know, it lends itself some of the same glory. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. I'm looking forward to being harassed by you about it. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. buckle up for that. All right. So lots of squealing this week over the um, reunion, the Dawson's Creek 20th anniversary reunion on Entertainment Weekly. Um, and well, number one, it was a complete surprise. Like, they were able to keep it totally secret. Well, yeah, because Entertainment Weekly has ceased to be um, – I mean, they're still obviously the entertainment source, but they are much more of a a long-form kind of outlet than, say, the places that, you know, are tweeting all the time or sort of have as big an online presence as a print presence – there's still, uh, it's still an outlet that, yeah, has a bit more of a, I guess, a print process. So total surprise. Total surprise. Even that they were able to contain it, like, you know, with a photo shoot, and then there was like an hour-long video, um, that there were no leaks. Yeah. No, no, no production assistant. Nobody came out and was able to, like, drop a little hint, like, hey, the cast of Dawson's Creek got together, uh, everybody wait for it. It just kind of came like a lovely little surprise. Yeah, but I'm about to burst your bubble. You know how you say you're like a crush killer? Yeah. I'm about to like lovely, burst your lovely surprise. I'm about to kill your lovely surprise. You know why no production assistant said anything? Why? What does a 22-year-old production assistant care about a bunch of 40-year-olds? Good, good point. They good don't point. Care. Like some old show got back together. If I was a PA when, you know, the cast of Wings posed for a, a sh uh, cover. Yeah. I would not be bragging about it to my friends. Good point. I mean, I wonder whether or not people are going to be discovering it again on Netflix or whatever. For example, I have, at the time he was 17, um, and this was two years ago, my nephew knew nothing of Grey's Anatomy um, and he just started streaming season one on Netflix. Like, I wonder whether or not it'll experience a resurgence. But you're right. I mean, probably 25 plus is going to be the people, or maybe even 28 plus, care so, most about Dawson. 
I was surprised that you cared, to be honest. Dawson's Creek predates our friendship almost entirely. And I was surprised that it was such a big deal to you. Oh, I loved it. I'm, I have to say, I don't remember much of the later years. Of course, I remember the series finale, obviously. Right, of course. But yeah, from seasons one to three, I was like right there. Four, seasons one to four, I was right in it. Yeah, I mean, it was, that was how you had to be, you know? That's, it was the thing going. Um, and what's interesting about your question about whether your nephew or any teenagers will get into it, Kevin Williamson said in that interview that it was kind of the perfect little slice of life of what it was like to be a teenager at that time. Right. Uh, whether or not you believe that is another story, but I wonder whether uh, that is true, whether it will resonate for other generations. You know, people, uh, as well as Grey's Anatomy, which is still on the air, so that yeah. really changes things. Um, Friends is having a real resurgence with mm -hmm. young people. Teenagers are really into Friends. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure whether Dawson's Creek, which focuses on high school in such a real way and which doesn't really have like a an online presence as much, a cell phone presence, I wonder whether that will uh, resonate with them or not. I don't know. But it's interesting to me because, of course, as you say, it like shook a, a bunch of people in their 30s and yes. 40s, right? And I would say even men and women alike, like it was not a an exclusively a women thing. This was a big deal at the time. And I guess that's kind of why they came to do this cover and this interview, right? Like one of the things that's so interesting about this cast is that we've grown up with them. They're still our people. Uh, you know, if you look at the core four, Michelle Williams and Joshua Jackson, more than Katie Holmes and James Vanderbeek are, they're considered to be skilled actors that you are lucky to have in a project. Obviously she's out in front of all of them, but they're, they're not, they're just stars. Yeah. They're not teen stars or anything like right. that. So what's the benefit of coming back to do this reunion kind of thing? What's the leaning into the nostalgia factor? What's the strategy behind it? Well, I think that we have to break it out to the core four, right? Individually. Who do we start with? I mean, it's easy. Let's start with Katie Holmes. Yeah. It's, it's either starting with her or ending with her, really. Um, well, you know, in that respect, then let's just start with Michelle Williams. Well, sure. Okay, so… So what is the benefit or not to Michelle Williams? Because if there's one person I think who didn't need this at all, um, who would be the one who'd be like, that actually is on the list of career achievements for me, not… I don't think it makes the top three. Right. Right? But here's the thing is… Uh, so we talked a little bit offline about how this is the kind of thing where if you don't have everybody… You don't have yes. anything, yes. right? Had they not had all of the core four, right? then they… Forget about it. Yeah, they wouldn't have done the cover, yeah. right? As it is, they had the core four. They had all the supporting players, yeah. uh, except maybe for Abby. Uh, may she rest in peace. Um, remember Abby fell backwards off a dock? Yep. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, you have to have all or nothing. The thing about Michelle Williams, to me, that's a real easy one. because But Abby right. was there, right? No. You're thinking of Andy. Andy, right, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there were some naming issues, Dawson's yes. Creek, but, uh, 
Right. Yes. No, Abby was played by Monica Kina. Right. Right. Right, 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 right. Got it. Yeah. Right. I don't know where that came from. It was um, never really a series regular, but anyway. Okay. Got um, it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Yes, yes, yes. But for me, the Michelle Williams decision is super easy because you're right. It is not anywhere near the top three Mm-mm. of her career achievements. Yeah. But uh, as the reunion showed us, if you were living under a rock and didn't know, Dawson's Creek is where she met Busy, Busy Phillips. Phillips. That's her best friend in life. Okay. <laughs> Can we you – you want this under three hours. <laughs> And then, like, is it just because of Christ? <laughs> you want this under three hours, remember? <laughs> Fuck. Take a breath. Right, Take a glass of water. You all right? Michelle Williams is not a hard decision for me because you're right. It's nowhere near the top achievements in her career, but uh, as you know, if you haven't been living under a rock, Dawson's Creek is where she met Busy Busy Phillips, Phillips, who we call her best friend, but is somewhere closer to a life partner, right? Like They call each other the, like she says, that's the love of my life. Right. I love it. I love that so much. Which is lovely. They have, uh, each have children of their own Mm -hmm. and uh, Busy Phillips is married and so forth, but they are… Oh, they are… Totally, Ride or die. They're soulmates. Like in in that in the photo shoot, you'll notice Joshua Jackson, Katie Holmes, um, and James Vanderbeek get their own solo covers. And Michelle doesn't have a solo cover. Her cover is with Busy. Right. And let's we called it the core four. Audrey was not like core no. four, but the cover is Michelle and Busy. I love that because it announces so clearly this gave me that. Right? Like this show gave mm-hmm. her that. And I also want to point out that um, Michelle Williams coming out of Dawson's Creek was not seen as this huge star about to happen. That's the thing that we have to really remember uh, is she was, you know, a little bit of an also ran. She was not considered to be Katie Holmes and Joshua Jackson were the breakouts of that show, right? They were the types you hadn't seen before. They were the things. Yeah. It would be many years before Michelle Williams would happen. Really, Brokeback Mountain was what made her uh, into the Michelle Williams kind of Oscar contender movie maker. That on we- a Yeah, on a high-level public consciousness thing. I think in the industry, she was definitely percolating. She was percolating, but she was also... Um, she was overlooked sometimes. You know, I there's a great book that is now uh, uh, now almost a throwback called Billion Dollar Kiss. Yeah. Uh, and it is a book by Jeffrey Stepikoff about Dawson's Creek and the floundering of it and how that kind of led to what was happening in teen television at the time. It's also the launch of the career of Greg Berlanti. So mm-hmm. it's all very interesting. But there is a point in that book where uh, an executive refers to the character, Jen Lindley, not Michelle Williams, yeah. as uh, a chipmunk-cheeked C-word. Uh, she was not really celebrated at the time. So I think, too, that coming back and doing the doing the cover and doing the, 
the cover with Busy Phillips is sort of, uh, this is what this gave me and how much I needed it when uh, she wasn't necessarily the big deal that she is right. now. So I how, have, how much she doesn't need it now. How much she doesn't need it, but also this is what we're always saying, right? Like take, go and look and be grateful for the, the gifts that it gave you. Yeah, is Dawson's Creek going to hold up as, you know, the, the high point of cinema, television, sort of teen television cinematic gold? No, it's not, honestly. Uh, but it launched a generation and it gave her a tangible thing. And I think it's great to nod to that thing. And her best friendship. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Her, It gave her that and probably a sense of who she was and yeah. that that friendship has stayed with her for the last 20 years yeah. is, or 15 or whatever. That's huge. I think that that is what's really heartwarming too, is that if you look at what Dawson's Creek gave her professionally, probably not as much, given that we've just said, it's not even in the top three of like the things that we know you know, what we know Michelle Williams for, but it gave her something on a personal level that when, you know, during the interview, they talk about why these shows resonate with people and in your formative years, what happens then is the anchor to so much else that happens in your life. For her, she's actually living that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's it's still a high school, right? Yeah. You brought up something else that I didn't intend to get to at all, but when Dawson's Creek was taping, uh, it was in Wilmington, North Carolina, both for uh, the setting, which was near where Kevin Williamson had grown up, and for, uh, like, tax credits and so forth. And at the time, Hollywood was in its teen boom, teen movies, teen whatever. And there was more than a little noise from uh, Vanderbeek and Holmes and Jackson and Williams, vaguely, in th that they couldn't audition for all of those things. They couldn't be in that mix because they were in North Carolina. Yeah. They couldn't shoot over to an audition. Right. And then get to the studio. And, uh, you know, and I remember reading that more than once. And, of course, now I go, oh, that saved you. That made you not overexposed mm -hmm. as opposed to everybody else that we can think of in that era who was in every project. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe is part of the reason that there's still an appetite for them today. I mean, is there an appetite for them? I think there is. Uh, Vanderbeek, who, you know, when we were debating who are we going to talk about and why they're there, I, I think it's the most, it, it requires the least discussion, right? He is Dawson. Is it just because he looks like Dawson still? Like, is he always going to be Dawson because of how Dawson-y he is? Well, I don't follow James Vanderbeek. Really? Right. Like, you're going to have to tell me, because he's in something right now. I don't know what it is. Um, I, at least not off the top of my head. Like, I know peripherally that he is currently on some TV show and has consistently been on some TV show, like, every two years. If you were to tell me, if, uh, the pop quiz, what has James Vanderbeek been doing over the last five years, I would say, oh, he's, that, he's the kind of guy who shows up every couple of years on a pilot. And it goes one season and then it gets canceled. I want to say maybe the bitch in, but sometimes I confuse him with Paul Mark Gosler. Mark Paul Gosler. That, bite uh, your tongue. Exactly. Uh, but yes, James Vanderbeek works a lot. Yes, he was in Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Um, he has shown up in all kinds of, he was on CSI Cyber, which is a title that needs to be retired. Um, and uh, Modern Family and so forth. He 
uh, is, you know, he plays in movies. Obviously, he doesn't need the money. No. Um, so he often, like, his career is often based a little bit around skewering his former image. That was the point of Don't Trust the Bee, which I think did very well. And he's very well regarded in the industry. Like, everybody knows that he uh, will come to play and will come to work and so forth. But I do wonder if it's because the show was called Dawson's Creek or because, uh, I don't know, like, he has such a distinctive look. I'm not sure why exactly uh, he's still Dawson 20 years later. Uh, he also has aged very well. He looks like Dawson in a way that some of the others do not look like their teen characters. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it's a, it's not a hard conversation to have. You're like, yeah, this is the show. This made you, your James Vanderbeek, end of story. This also brings up a thing, a theory. I don't even know if it's a full blown theory that I've had. Over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so that I haven't had time to explore or I don't know even if there's anything, maybe you'll shoot it down immediately. But I generally find that in teen shows that it is the women who end up having more potential post-teen show life than men. Um, And I, right now off the top of my head, all I'm basing this on is Luke Perry and uh, Brandon, <laughs> Jason Priestley. I, 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 I often like to me, or maybe it's just my care level, you know, when we, and I guess this is very per- coming from a personal, uh, personal perspective, when you and I, for instance, when we get together and we reminisce about teen shows, our attention and focus and obsession is always on the girls. Um, you know, I don't really care so much about the dudes and I generally, and I, this is not even real, so I, this is what we're exploring, find that po- when the show ends, it is the women who go on to become more interesting. Like, frankly, we'll always be more interested in Shannon Doherty and Jenny Garth than in Luke Perry and Jason Priestley. Well, I think what you're talking about is of a generation. Um, and I think maybe Dawson's Creek changed it a little bit. One of the reasons that you feel that way, I think, and felt that way is because on shows like 90210, um, the girls did stuff, had adventures or problems or got into things, uh, up and down and whatever. And the guys are dudes, right? Like Kelly gets into, uh, being seduced into a cult and the dude's a dude. Yeah. Um, Emily Valentine, Brendan's awesome girlfriend is super into euphoria and has a mental illness. Yeah. And he's a dude. Yeah. Um, and that happened for a lot of teen television right? Like this is one of the reasons why teen TV and probably why a lit is so, is such a big deal, but so underappreciated, mm-hmm. I think, because it lets the girls be complicated, act- complicated and the active characters. Yeah. Right. Uh, when we met Dylan McKay on 90210, he was a former alcoholic. He was at 16 in retrospect, this is hysterical. At 16, he was already in recovery, right? Um, He had gone through his whole thing and learned and was in recovery already. And let's say at 16 in quotes. Yeah, uh, (laughs) at 16 in quotes. Yes. Yeah, no, you could drive through the the valleys on his forehead. But the character was 16. Um, Whereas 
yeah, the the female characters on that show and others were the ones who were having things happen. You can have an episode or three or four about Brenda Walsh having a mm-hmm. sex life. Uh, and Brandon Walsh's sex life is kind of an asterisk. And then we go on to talk about his political career for a while. <laughs> like, what? Who cares? Well, and you could say the same about Dawson, right? Like, Dawson was the blandest. He was. And it's partly because his goals had very little to do with the here and now. They did a really good thing in that Dawson's uh, Dawson's goals were real and didn't change. He wanted to be a filmmaker, and that trumped everything else, and that is quite right. That's who that person is. Um, and often that's the person who goes on to be, uh, you know, a, a dream achiever, to go on to do what they want. But they're often not that interesting when they're 17. Yeah. Uh, and so – that's really interesting. I want to point out, though, that Pacey Witter, uh, who was supposed to be the goofy sidekick, maybe was the beginning of the change. Joshua Jackson was the one who uh, had the very racy storyline yep. with uh, with his teacher. He mm-hmm. was dating his teacher in episode two or three. He was sleeping with her. Uh, he, I think, had diagnosed learning disabilities. He had visible emotional arcs over the seasons and may have been the beginning of the change. He was still him. He had fewer, you know, dramas and moments and whatever, but he may have been the beginning of the change because I would suggest to you that what you said about, oh, we're interested in uh, mostly the girls and the women uh, is changing. And the reason I would suggest it's changing is because the exception, of course, is Friday Night Lights. Mm Mm-hmm. Friday Night Lights created for us a bunch of nuanced, interesting young men uh, who then were played by nuanced, interesting actors who are not the most pretty. Mm -hmm. Like, we've been talking about this from a story point of view, but the other way to look at this from an acting point of view is that if you're looking for somebody who uh, believably looks 16, there are a lot more girls who want to be in the business and who are trying to be actors then there are boys or young men. Yeah. And so sometimes you have to make compromises on their acting ability, sometimes in Hollywood. Uh, but Friday Night Lights didn't do that because looks were not what they were looking for. They had these really amazing nuanced performers. And look at them now. Like, look at – did you expect that you would still be following Landry? Um, <laughs> like Lance, uh, yeah. Jesse Plemons is – uh, kind of an acting force to be reckoned with yeah. and also uh, engaged to be married to Kirsten Dunst and the father of her child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously Michael B. Jordan is known to everybody now as Killmonger or right. as, as uh, you know, he, his Creed movies or whatever. But come on, he's Vince. Yeah. He's Vince from the Dylan line. But the counterpoint to that is that none of these is Jason Street. And that's fine. And I don't, I mean. Who would be like in the mold of the Dawson or the um, the Brandon. Right. The lesson here is don't build your show around a straight white guy because <laughs> he winds up having to be. No, but it's, a, it's an actual thing. Often when you build your show around one person, he can't be too interesting because networks fear that audiences will be alienated by that person. Right. That's pre-anti-hero. Uh, that's pre-kind of Don Draper. 
but in teenage form, that may still be the case. And I think it's something that's still being tested, that Riverdale is testing, et cetera, letting your lead be more interesting. Um, but it's a it's an evolution. So yeah, Dawson's Creek may have been the beginning of that. So I would say James Vanderbeek on our given our original um, thesis, I would say break even from this. Sure. Yeah. Um, Joshua Jackson. I mean, sometimes I find it hard to cut through the bias about Joshua Jackson, mm-hmm. and by the bias, I mean my bias. He is Canadian still, relentlessly. He is uh, warm and charming, and everybody I know who has worked with him or near him is just like, that's just a good guy. That's the kind of guy you want to work with and hang out with. He's well-respected, but he has not had the real breakout that you might have expected he would by now. Right. Right? There's not been a new career-defining role. No. And? um, Like, we still, like, it is, he's Pacey. Well, and perhaps uh, in line with a couple of my earlier points, uh, when looking at the Dawson's Creek cover, uh, the Joshua Jackson cover, uh, Michelle Lavretta, who uh, is a a TV writer, created uh, shows that you love, like Lost Girl and Killjoys, wrote, okay, but why did you dress Pacey like an extra from Witness? (laughs) And it's worth pointing out that that hat that he wears yeah. and that Katie Holmes also wears on her cover. I don't know if it does a lot for him, but maybe it's his innate Canadianness that makes him go, yeah, sure, I'll wear the hat. Yeah. Like, no problem. Uh, I don't know. Do we need Joshua Jackson to have a bigger career than he does? Or is it quite fine and he's fine and it's all good? Well, we talked about Michelle Williams and the top three things, right, that she's done that we would list off. And we would say Dawson's Creek doesn't make that. I would say that for Joshua Jackson, Dawson's Creek is still, everybody's like, oh, that's Pacey Witter. That's Pacey Witter. Well, I think there are two different things, though. Are you talking about the role that defined them, or are you talking about the most high-quality things that they've done, or whatever? The role that defined them. Right. Because I would still say that Dawson's Creek defines Michelle Williams. She's just not remembered for it anymore. Well, I... You know, I wouldn't say that there even are, for instance, if you just bring up Michelle Williams in conversation, it's been a long time since I've talked about Michelle Williams and brought up Dawson's Creek within the first two paragraphs. Fair enough. But I guess the question is, to me now I'm talking about acting and style and Jen Lindley was not, did not allow her to explore every like all of her skills in the way that everything she's done since has but they all they're all kind of on a continuum like whether your Michelle Williams touchstone is Brokeback Mountain or Take This Waltz or Blue Valentine or uh One Week with Marilyn or uh, yeah or One Week with Marilyn or um Station Manchester Agent. by the Sea uh-huh what were you gonna say Station Agent Oh, see, I don't remember the station agent well. But a lot of those have real, uh, there's a lot of DNA shared there, right? Like there, a lot of that was first discovered in, in Jen Lindley. That's maybe the difference for me. Joshua Jackson plays roles that have nothing to do with Pacey uh, in their performance. But his face or his cadence or whatever is still there. 
Um, for example, I really love him on The Affair as Cole. Uh, and I guess the character is like Pacey in that it's a fairly steady guy who is from a town that trades in the seaside. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, you know, there is a similarity, but the characters are not similar. And yet, as you say, people still refer to Pacey. Yeah. And I, he had a long stretch too on a show. What was it called? Fringe? Fringe. Yeah. He's a, he had a long stretch too on that show. So it was like steady employment, right? He's he's also, I don't worry about Joshua Jackson getting work. No, he's been working. Yeah. He's been working. And I, I think that he's going to be that guy too for a long time where people are just going to be like, oh yeah, what about Joshua Jackson? And then he'll get hired. Like, I'm not worried about that, but I just, I don't think that he's going to make a leap where he carries one. And I don't know if he needs to, you know, like that's the other thing. As I scroll through his filmography, as you say, he's always been working. Uh, and the affair is, um, he did the affair and fringe and a lot of theater actually. And for various people, like there was a lot of media attention on these guys back in the day. He may never have wanted that again, working at this level, working on a level that is not carrying it again, allows him to kind of maybe operate slightly below the radar. There's a point where people have had enough of the attention and the scrutiny and so forth. And maybe this is where he likes to live. I have no problems with that. Break even here too? Uh, I think it's a slight get on the part of Entertainment Weekly. I think that having Joshua Jackson in the mix uh, obviously kicks everything up a notch because he's a he's a newsstand draw on his own with or without the project. Mm, I I'm not if I'm Entertainment Weekly, I'm not the I he's not the one I'm worried about getting. But I guess what I'm saying is if I'm Entertainment Weekly not 20 years after Dawson's Creek and I put him on the cover, it's going to sell, I think. I think he has that intrinsic draw still now. May more than more certainly than James Vanderbeek. Yes. I don't know that he's if I'm Entertainment Weekly, I'm like, yes, editorial decision. This week's cover is going to be Joshua Jackson non Pacey. I mean, I'm just saying if they do, if there's a reason, if there's a story, I don't think they're gonna take a real hit on it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a but again, yeah, break even. Fair. Yeah. Which brings us to Which brings us to. So we have certainly we have established that Michelle Williams didn't need this. No, this is a give back to Dawson's Creek. Yeah. This is a look how great <laughs> yes. Dawson's made my life. Right. Um, Pacey, and I keep calling them their character names, but James and Joshua break even. Sure, yeah. I would yeah. say if there's a slight edge over the other, James Vanderbeek almost has to do this, right? Right. Uh, he is synonymous with Dawson in a way that right. uh, Josh Jackson may not be synonymous with Pacey. So, Katie Holmes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Katie Holmes is not synonymous with her Dawson's Creek character. I think there are few people who even remember the name Joey Potter anymore, right? I would agree that she's no longer synonymous with Dawson's Creek. The reasons for that, though, are debatable. Oh, we know why the reasons are, of course. Like, let's be real here. And this steps slightly outside of work, but in Hollywood, how can it not? Katie Holmes is synonymous with… Tom Cruise. With Tom Cruise, with Scientology, with a secret divorce. Yes. Um, I mean, one of the great memories of my life is how excited you were for uh, for my wedding and for all the celebrations surrounding it, uh, but it almost threatened to be overshadowed by Katie Holmes's stealth divorce. Yes. I have never <laughs> seen you so excited. <laughs> Which is sounds terrible. Like, I wasn't… No, no, no. I'm not But it was that. a huge gossip story. And it was a full week before and whatever. I just Oh, mean, my God. It was, a, it was a big deal. Yeah. This is how people think of Katie Holmes. And it's not… Certainly, it's not totally fair in that in the, uh, in the interim, after taking a little time off when her daughter was very small, as let's be real, a lot of actors do, right? She has been working. There was the clothing line, Holmes and Yang. We talked about Jean Yang uh, a week ago, mm-hmm. uh, who was in the stylist roundtable. Uh, and she, uh, you know, she's been... Man, as I sort of look through these these filmographies, yeah, uh, and it'll come up again a little bit later. How I Met Your Mother comes up a lot. How I Met Your Mother does not get enough credit for being a show that was on for like ten years and was like, yeah, who you got to resurrect? We'll put them on, no yeah. problem. Um, but Katie Holmes has been working. She has been in. She's been in twelve films. Since 2013, that's Mm -hmm. post-divorce, there was the clothing line. She has made uh, TV appearances. She's done all of her uh, Kennedy's uh, miniseries and so forth. She's been in Ray Donovan. That was a recurring role. She's been working. She's been working. Quite a bit. Quite a bit. And yet. And yet. And you know, to be fair… Part of the working and the limited working, like she's been working, as you're saying, but everything is in supporting. Yeah, yeah. No, she's, yeah. well, except for, I would say, the the Kennedys, right? Like, she's playing Jackie Kennedy. She's out yes. front. Um, and, I mean, look. She's, but she's not Olivia Pope. No, like, it's she's not, not that kind of show. No, but that's, a, that's, again, I think that's the benefit of either her Dawson's Creek money or uh, her divorce settlements or whatever. <laughs> um Work, being Olivia Pope is not just a career decision, right? That's a grueling 45-week-a-year, uh, 15-hour-a-day right. hustle. And I was building to that. I mean, like… Oh, pardon the, me. The, the, the supporting may have been… The choices there may have been because she has a young daughter. Sure. And there's a lot of… There's a lot of freedom she has to still be present in her daughter's life without She's committing. a single parent, That's right? right. Like, whether or not we get into when Tom Cruise sees who, whatever, blah, blah, blah… I think it's universally acknowledged that Katie Holmes is the primary parent in that situation. That's right. And that even if they were married, Tom Cruise is not interrupting his, like, action schedule in Bucharest. No. To, like… Jumping off buildings, helicopters, whatever. No. In order to go to a parent-teacher conference. She's a single parent. Yeah. Um, And so, yes, the the roles that she's taken and the decisions she's made may very well be 
because her child was young after she left Tom Cruise and that was the kind of schedule she wanted. So it brings us back to this cover and this resurrection of, of Dawson's Creek and this profile that it brings her. Does she need it? Suri is now something like 12 years old. Something like that. Yeah. Sure. Um, I believe, yeah, 12 years old in April. Wow. If memory serves. Like, I want to say Suri was born in 2006. It's 2018. I want to say she was ba- married in, a- uh, she was born in April. If You are gossip- very good. Yes. I was about to correct you because they were uh, married in 2006. But of course, she was born first. Uh, so, yes, you are correct that on April 18th, 2018, Suri Cruz, who I think we haven't seen in, like, paparazzi photos in years, is going to be 12 years old. Like, we see her pop up now and again, but they're very exclusive photos. Not everybody can afford to buy them, you know, like, whatever. So right. I'm talking about my budget. But, yeah, so she's going to be 12. Yeah. So that is, you know, she's becoming, she's going to be a teenager soon. Mom, she's going to have her own life. Katie Holmes could be ready to go back to work in a more significant way. That's right. Here's the thing about Katie Holmes on this cover. Uh, She's the wild card, right? She's the one you wouldn't have expected to be there. Even though Michelle Williams is the bigger star, Katie Holmes is the bigger question mark. When I say that, what I mean is she has so distanced herself from Dawson's Creek that there was a time when, you know, you didn't know if she was going to participate in something like this, if she was trying to put everything pre- her new life, if you say her new life began, let's say, after her divorce, um, there was a time when it seemed she was trying to push everything before that behind the back burner. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know. And I'm going to say that I think the reason this cover is resonating so much with everybody, certainly with me, is because it makes me feel my age in a way that makes me almost emotional. I'm having a real uh, reaction to seeing them all this old, because mm-hmm. I'd like to believe that I'm still young and cool. Uh, and, you know, I don't feel that way looking at Vanderbeek or Joshua Jackson or Michelle Williams, but looking at Katie Holmes, who looks like a grown woman in that evening gown and her short hair reminds me beyond the shadow of a doubt that like, we're old, we're not teenagers anymore. Um, where it puts her, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I don't know what she wants and it's so hard to know. Mm-hmm. She's done enough press to last her several lifetimes. So yeah. we may never know. Um, but I don't have a real idea of what her hope is for her career going forward. Well, the reason why I brought up Olivia Pope earlier is because she has I believe, just signed on to a new TV series where that Olivia Pope-ness, I mean, we're not talking about the same character. She's not going to be a fixer, but she has signed on to, uh, they're calling it like a new FBI series. Um, And so she's going to play an FBI agent in the midst of a scandalous affair with a well-known military general. This is according to Variety. Um, it's an Eileen Chaikin, Melissa Scrivener pilot for Fox. Um, she's, she's special agent Hazel Otis. Uh, we hear a lot about her character 
don't know anything about who the military general is. So again, when I say, when I talked about Olivia Pope, this is the thing, right? This is the, Katie Holmes is headlining a TV series. And you're right. It is a series. And she's also signed on to be an executive producer, meaning Mm -hmm. uh, that can be a name only, or it can be uh, much more of an integral role, but it means that she intends to be a part of this for the long haul, right? That she's not just stopping by. No. So this means that she's ready to press the button on a reset or a new era. That's right. A new chapter. Correct. So I think that among the core four, the, the one who made this decision with the most strategy, it would seem, would be Katie Holmes. Because uh, this puts her in a profile at exactly the right time. Right. And because in the continuing death of my youth, we're <laughs> the audience for that FBI show, right? Like yeah. it used to be that shows like that were aimed at people's grandparents, mm-hmm. uh, a procedural that was sort of on Fox meant that it was going to be aimed at not us. Uh, but, you know, Katie Holmes is 39 and is nodding to her audience. Maybe click over from the CW, guys. Like maybe try yeah. uh, and grow up a little bit. So, well, right now it's immediate growing up, right? Like this is someone who's having an affair. So this is a workplace illicit, I'm going to I'm going to assume, illicit romance, torrid, maybe is a word that might come up. Like this is, she's getting into her sexuality. Yeah, certainly not on the up and up. And FBI agent implies danger and all of the rest of it. Yeah, so it's a growing up for the kind of character that she plays. Maybe that's why she appeared on this cover in a full evening gown. Maybe that's why it was such a a bittersweet uh, sort of pose because she... You know, as we we keep talking about their looks, we keep talking about how uh, none of them have really changed their look. Michelle Williams has that real close cropped hair, but she was flirting with short hair on the show, actually, and uh, the tone of it is not much changed. It's Katie Holmes's image that has changed most radically, and that kind of puts that stamp on the march of time, that she's not holding her own elbow in a vintage sweater, uh, she's not that little girl that she was. So, yeah, I agree with you that it is not just a benefit for her to be here, but a real place for her to signal, hey, new day, even if it makes me a little bit sad. I guess the question is this, uh, my emotions aside, Does this stir up like a nostalgia for you? Do you want to do a Dawson's Creek rewatch? Or are you just happy they're here as the late 30s, early 40s adults that they are? For me personally, it didn't inspire like a weekend, Easter weekend, Dawson's Creek binge. And you're a binger. And I'm a binger. Like I'm one of those people where if I miss something, I'm going to throw all the other things off the priority list and get to something that absolutely does not need to be done. But it didn't, I didn't feel the need for it. I was okay with where it is right now. And maybe that's what this is all about. Like it's, it's kind of the cap on something, but it, but they never really went away. And maybe that's why I don't know if anyone out there, like Kevin Williamson has been talking about, oh no, we're not going to do a reunion. What will we do? Jen's dead. Like, you know, but I don't know that anyone's asking for it. 
No, because that show tied off the bow in a way yeah. that a whole lot didn't, right? They flashed forward. They tied up all the characters. It was, they were ready to be done at that time. And I think that was the right decision. That's a nice segue to what we're going to talk about next. Well, I guess everything is unpredictable, right? Because uh, I certainly don't think you and I plan to talk about the Roseanne revival on this show. And Roseanne is the latest in a string of revivals uh, with Will and Grace and the upcoming Murphy Brown Uh, And those are revivals of shows with the same actors as opposed to one day of, as opposed to one day at a time, which is a, a reimagining of an old show, right? But the revival business is huge, as we know. Nostalgia is huge. Yeah. And then I always just think of Larry David, who's been making Curb Your Enthusiasm for like the last 18 (laughs) years, just whenever he feels like it. He's like, yeah, let's knock off six more. Um, I don't think we intended to be talking about it. And... Obviously, the reason it's a story in the bigger sense is that the numbers were huge. Uh, The Roseanne revival, I think the first half hour got over 18 million people, which is, those are 1990s numbers. Those are the kinds of numbers that don't happen at all anymore, uh, period, where now a three or four million share, as they call it, is kind of, that's decent ratings. Uh, as opposed to, for example, a Lucy Hale show, which I read this weekend, is getting in the 400,000 viewers, which is, uh, that's very, very terrible. So Roseanne kind of did the impossible. That's the big story. And the other story, of course, is that in the intervening years since the show went off the air, uh, Roseanne Barr has become this really politically divisive figure who is... uh, by turns, depending on who you ask or what you read, uh, a Nazi sympathizer, a harasser of Parkland teens, a Donald Trump uh, advocate. You know, it's been hard to divorce the program from the person, right? That's right. And the conversation that has really been going on since the premiere and in talking about the popularity of the show and the ratings has been focused on Roseanne's politics. But you brought up a conversation that actually nobody is having, and that's what we do here on this podcast. The conversation that nobody is having is the conversation about how this all came to be, because Roseanne is not the showrunner. No, she's not the showrunner. Um, Whitney Cummings, uh, who uh, whose show Whitney and who created Two Broke Girls, is the showrunner. Um, But the revival was actually conceived of and executive produced by Sarah Gilbert. Sarah Gilbert, of course, plays Darlene. That's where we all met her. Um, And she was, uh, is referred to as the architect of the reboot. Um, And it's particularly interesting because she is obviously working as, uh, you know, still working as an actress, but primarily working as uh, a one of the hosts of the talk, uh, and she is an out gay woman, a woman who's been in Hollywood for a long time. And so, what's interesting to me is that this is a huge win for her to have constructed a to have constructed a revival and hit the notes that make it seem contemporary 
and also uh, nostalgic. It's not just nostalgia, right? Like obviously the Connors and the stories that they visit are definitely of a 2018 time. Uh, that's a real that's a real win, and it shows a real eye that I don't think anybody was necessarily assigning to Sarah Gilbert before now. No, and she did one interview, or there were a couple of articles um, about how um, she was the one who brought everybody back together. I think the first person she brought on was John Goodman. That's in the article that I read. I believe that was in The Hollywood Reporter. Having said that, uh, I don't know how many people out there read it and know this. And so this is this is what is is interesting to me about when you pitched this. I was like, yeah, let's let's go here because you're right. It's a major success for her since she's the architect, Sarah Gilbert is, of making this happen. And I I would and I'm not sure that is getting the play that it could be getting because is it being lost in the larger conversation about Roseanne's personal politics, whether or not this show um, is dangerous or helpful, whether or not it's hypocritical. At the end of the day, a show that comes back and gets 18 million viewers and essentially is one of the biggest wins, no, the biggest network television wins since 2014 it's all due to a gay woman working in Hollywood. Number one, no one's talking about that enough. Number two, what will it do for her? Are you confident that Sarah Gilbert is going to be able to ride this win? Uh, yeah, I am. Because okay. to me, this is a woman who has been, uh, you know, biding her time, right? Sarah Gilbert is not a rookie. So she got into the business, uh, I'm sure she worked before Darlene. She was 11 when she got the role. Um, little known fact, she's actually from a showbiz family. Um, she is Melissa Gilbert's sister, uh, and Jonathan Gilbert is, uh, he played Albert on Little House on the Prairie. Um, so she is Melissa Gilbert's little sister, like who was president of the, uh, who was president of the Screen Actors Guild for a long time. Um, as well as, you know, a couple of roles your mom might have known. And like, like one of Rob Lowe's first girlfriends, which right? is like, I'm still obsessed with that. Rob Lowe and Melissa Gilbert. And like when they were young, so imagine the fucking, given what we know of Rob Lowe, the sex that they were having. Well, and <laughs> to contextualize all of that, I believe that Melissa Gilbert and Sarah Gilbert are 14 years apart. Mm -hmm. So if she was dating Rob Lowe when she was 18 or 19, uh, Sarah Gilbert was uh, five or six. Like these are this is the environment that we're yeah. talking about. Anyway, but I enjoyed that tangent. P.S. I am glad <laughs> she. Um, but she then, you know, after Roseanne finished, she went to uh, Yale, I believe it is. Then she kind of did a few small things. Like we hadn't seen her for a long time until the talk began, uh, which I have to confess I don't see very often. But uh, I have a soft spot for her because I like Aisha Tyler, who's also a real anchor on it. Um, and by all accounts is quite good. And, uh, and then kind of put this show back together with an eye towards the audience having an appetite for it and with an eye towards, you know, it being the right time and, you know, managing Roseanne is one of the phrases that comes up a lot. Understanding now as a grown woman, who previously was in the show as a child, 
uh, understanding that that's something that would need to be managed, but that it's also essential alchemy for the show, I think speaks to creating herself as a producer uh, in a way that I'm sure she would say I've been a producer for some time. She's also, uh, you know, working, she's also a producer on the talk and so has been grooming herself for this position. Uh, but I found it really interesting and especially given that, look, we don't know, but, and you may know if you watch the talk, but it's easy to assume that somebody who is a gay person who works in entertainment, who lives in California, is probably diametrically opposed to the politics that are espoused by A, Roseanne Barr, and B, the family on the show. Um, But I think it's really interesting that this is what she chose to and was able to take on. And in a way that seems to hit the buttons for obviously a huge number of people. So what is her exact executive producer? Yes. So she is credited as being one of the executive producers, also was in the writing room every day uh, in the early stages of development until she was required sort of on set or on her other projects, et cetera. So she's got her hands in every part of the project and obviously is savvy enough to see lots of angles, right? Uh, I read a great quote that said that Johnny Galecki, who of course played David, her uh, her main love interest and uh, arguably I think the father of her children on that show, I don't know if they confirmed that in the revival, um, said that she asked all the actors to speak to where they thought they might be 20 years later. And he said, you know, that's generous and all. It's also really ballsy because once you invite the opinions onto the table, then they're there uh, and you kind of can't ignore them. And that speaks to me to a real confidence in in what she was doing and a real uh, confidence in being able to trust people and go like, yeah, we can make this work for all involved. Again, there's nobody who it appears didn't want to come back. It doesn't look like there were any debates about like, oh, where's so-and-so or we had to paper over that thing. And Usually you don't get that unless everybody has buy-in. As we were talking about with the Dawson's Creek story, arguably nobody needed this revival, right? Their careers are all mostly doing well, except maybe for uh, the Connor children, uh, Lisey Garanson and Michael Fishman, who they weren't the ones who were going to make or break the show anyway, right? Had they decided not to go, had they decided not to participate, the show would have still gone. But... Roseanne Barr and John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf all have like big careers. They don't need this. So it speaks to Sarah Gilbert being able to create something that they all thought was beneficial and work their and worth their time that they're all there. So my question to you is, and the reason why I asked, hey, is she what's her title and all of that, is because um Given that there is controversy around the show, right? Yeah. There are people who are defending it. There are people who are denouncing it. And, you know, I should say the controversy is there's some controversy about the show, about how the Connor family is portrayed as, uh, quote unquote, uh, perfect conservatives, right? In that they don't appear to be racist. They're just trying to get along, blah, blah, blah. But I would say that most of the controversy is about Roseanne the person, right? And in giving that person a new platform. 
and how that person in real life uh, contradicts some of the work that they're trying to do on the show. Yes. In its, you know, in its portrayal um, and sensitivity towards, let's say, the LGBTQ community and so on and so forth. So establishing that there is controversy around the show, that there are people who are supportive of it, there are people who are critical of it, some people are very critical of it. Roxanne Gay just wrote um, an op-ed for the New York Times talking about how much she loved the show in its past incarnation and how much she actually did enjoy the one-hour premiere and that said why she can't continue watching it, um, why she struggles with it. So, period, point blank, there is controversy. If you are someone like Roxanne Gay, like whoever it is who opposes the direction of the show, who has serious problems with it, and given that Sarah Gilbert is one of the linchpins of it moving forward, does Sarah Gilbert have to wear that? As a boss, so she is one of the bosses, um, without her, this doesn't happen. This happens, people are offended. If you are offended, if you're out there listening, you don't like it, do you take the boss to task? I think the thing is that this is one of those situations where, and often, you know, when you ask a really valid question like that, I don't want to be in the position of uh, defending, you know, what is not necessarily palatable to me, right? Nobody wants to do that. But I think what what this is about is that I don't think anybody was offended by something that happened on the show, right? Nobody was offended by they changed this thing or they said this offensive thing or whatever, and now I am offended. Uh, There may have been some of that in the previous incarnation of the show. There are accusations of racism that I think hold water, Uh, and other attitudes, but, you know, we're not going to police what was 20 years in the past. My answer to to you is that Sarah Gilbert was the architect of a show that they put on the air and that, as we discussed, had a huge, huge ratings hit. Um, So I don't think anybody's offended by a creative choice that was made. I think they're offended or disagree with the fact that it exists at all in today's day and age, right? At which point the the answer is turn off the TV, don't choose that, don't choose to watch mm-hmm. it, etc. Do I think it's going to do I think people have a point? Absolutely. And I felt that same uh cognitive dissonance in watching. One of the things and we watched knowing that we might talk about it this week, one of the things is that everybody on that show is really good at being who they were, right? They fall back into those roles and there's a real uh, there's a real comfort to watching what is supposed to be a new show, but feeling people have that confidence as opposed to kind of pilot flop sweat that you often see and think like, okay, we'll let them get better. But in short, Sarah Gilbert made a show, said it will resonate with audiences, and it did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's any uh, anything to wear there. And I think she's very lucky and uniquely placed in that unlike most creators, she gets to go on TV every day as herself on the talk and completely be herself, say all the things that she uh, believes in real life, right? 
I mean, Darlene, the character, is not gay. So it's one of those things where in one, you know, somebody who is an actor is not playing themselves. uh, And she gets to go and be herself every day and say, this is how I really feel about things. And then also create a show that appeals to a whole lot of people who maybe don't feel like they are being represented. I mean, it makes her a smart business person. I don't know if you have to apologize for that. Does it make you, you know, somebody who's speaking to the concerns of Americans? Uh, I guess that depends who those Americans are. Well, see, I think it's just really interesting to live in that place. We already established that she may, I mean, we are doing it here. You have done it very well here, but it's still, I think it still remains to be seen whether or not she will be credited for the success of this. And then on the flip side, whatever negativity that surrounds the show, because it's half positive, half negative, right? Which is kind of the why this has become the perfect storm. And I would just say, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just want to say, I think the half positive and half negative existed before the show came back or the positive has grown. There was negativity around resurrecting it, around giving Roseanne Barr a platform. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the positivity came, A, in the form of ratings, and B, in people going, wow, that was skillfully pulled off or whatever. I don't think there's anything in the content of the show that has made people more negative. Fair? Uh, No, I would would disagree. I think given that people have now seen the content of the show, it has amplified whatever um, misgivings they had going in. Okay. So, uh, but I mean, the point here is that she, it remains to be seen whether or not she will be fully credited for this accomplishment. And on the flip side, she's not, she doesn't seem to be wearing or the target of the controversy and the negativity. I agree with that. And yeah. it's a very, and to go, so you're, the last thing that you said was that, you know, this is a smart business person. And I think that's a very interesting place to live where you can fly under the radar of success and fly under the radar of provocation and um, uh, protest and live in a place where maybe that is sort of the sweet spot. Well, I think that... In work. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are seeing so many people now. um, The lines are so blurry. We used to never know who any of these producers were. And, you know, you asked me about the executive producer and I talked about Whitney Cummings, who I think was uh, more of a, who I think was a more, it was in a head writer capacity. They also had Bruce Helford as the showrunner. He was the showrunner from season five. Um, so we, I brought up that name because she's been an actress and is now working behind the scenes. Uh, we used to not know any of these producers and it used to be that actors took a lot of the heat for whatever in a real traditional sense. That's who Roseanne Barr is being in this situation where producers were behind the scenes and didn't talk about any of it. If the producer of this show, if the architect of getting it all back together was a gay woman in her early forties who had success, who none of us knew the name of, there'd be no conversation here and there would be no, I think what you're getting at, which I think is really interesting, is 
it wouldn't erase anything. I think part of what's going on here is people going, oh, but Sarah Gilbert is a different person in her private life to who Darlene is on the show, blah, blah, blah. Does that mitigate any of this? And I think my answer is, I don't think it changes anybody's opinion or how they should feel about their reaction to the show or or the reason the show's on or how they feel about it. But... I do think that it's giving people a more uh, nuanced perspective on the idea of it than they would have otherwise. So does it change your opinion of Sarah Gilbert? I don't think I had one. And do you know? I, I think that I'm working on one now. Okay. Um, because I am one of those people who's struggling with Roseanne. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you pitch this as the angle for us to come at Roseanne from… I was like full in for this conversation because I think, first of all, it's one that not as many people or anyone, no one's having it. Number two, this is what, this is all the questions I've asked you are actually questions I'm asking myself. So how does this make me feel about Sarah Gilbert, given that I have complicated feelings about this revival um, and certainly am not on board with Roseanne Barr's personal politics and whatever platform this is becoming. Like I'm still shaping my, I'm still shaping my feelings around all of it. And now that there's like an added layer of Sarah Gilbert. Yeah. Like I'm super, super into the fact that she is the executive producer, that she's the architect. I really, um, I really think it's interesting that She's living in a space where not enough people know that she should get the credit for this, and yet not enough people know that maybe she should be the one they're mad at, or at least when you're having a bigger conversation about who's responsible for this, should this be happening? Like, I get it that you are saying that, hey, I mean, this is just great for her, but if you are out there and you're listening, if you are one of those people who's like this, no, like I can't abide by this, Sarah Gilbert might have to be part of that discussion. I think what I, I I hear everything you're saying, and I think it's really interesting. That said, one of the things I love that you always do is talk about how there's a real world application to everything that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And one of the real world applications I feel here is that um, one of the realities of work, and you and I were talking about this in a different context this week, is that Not everything that you do is going to align with your personal position on things, right? That everybody's got to make a living and that sometimes you will find yourself writing ad copy for a product that you would never endorse or, uh, you know, I don't know, putting eloquent words in the mouth of a CEO who can't string two words together or whatever it is. Um, But the end justifies the means, whether the end is... Uh, getting yourself to a promotion or uh, feeding your family or whatever, right? We all got to do what we got to do. These are super high class problems, but arguably Sarah Gilbert is in a position where she is amplifying her position of power and her voice. And maybe the next thing that she is executive producer of is something that reflects all the values that aren't being reflected here. So that's a point of consideration. I don't know whether that's true. It's worth noting that the Roseanne revival is only, I think, eight episodes. Uh, But that's an angle for me that I find, if not comforting, then at least debatable. 
let us know now that we've sort of put Sarah Gilbert front and center in this Roseanne conversation. If no one does, then we'll take credit for that. Um, and give us your thoughts on how you see Roseanne with respect to Sarah Gilbert's involvement in the revival. Now, Roseanne was on the air from 1988 to 1997. We just talked about Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek was on the air from 1998 to 2003. And in that time, Dawson's Creek existed during the rise of Britney Spears. Like when I flash back to a period between 98 and 2003, and I'm flipping through magazines and I'm, you know, going to websites and the connection is way slower than it is now, it would not have been out of the ordinary to see in a magazine or on a webpage, uh, like a corner of, of that website or a corner of the magazine cover devoted to Dawson's Creek and a bigger corner or <laughs> the main page dedicated to one Britney Spears. No, you're absolutely right. And the only, uh, the only sort of amendment I have to your statement is that you said, uh, you know, that the timing of Dawson's Creek corresponded with the rise of Britney mm -hmm. Spears. And I have to nitpick the word rise because Britney Spears, and this is shocking to me in retrospect, Britney Spears's rise was not only meteoric and supernova, but it was fast. Mm -hmm. um, I love that we're talking about Britney. I love that we have legitimate reasons to talk about her. Um, and it feels kind of serendipitous that I went back and was reading a Britney biography this week before, before this came up, uh, because I always find very creative ways to procrastinate. Uh, but you know how they say nobody's an overnight success? Yeah. Britney Spears was an overnight success. Correct. The release of Baby One More Time, uh, which like the single Baby One More Time, uh, was October 1998, end of October 1998. And Oops, I Did It Again, the album dropped in the spring of 2000. So that's a year and a half. Not even. Yeah. Yeah. Like a year and change. Yeah. Um, for, well, that's so interesting though. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. For her to go from nobody. Yeah. To the, the fucking like supernova that she was by the time Oops, I Did It Again happened. Well, now I'm even more jacked because again, as I said, Dawson's Creek, 1998 yep. to 2003. So you think fall premiere, mm -hmm. fall 1998 would have premiered. And then Brittany, you're saying baby will my time, 1998, October. Yep. Like that is a perfect convergence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and she was right in the era of convergence uh, in terms of songs being played on shows and that kind of thing. In my like lizard brain, I think uh, sometimes the second song yeah. uh, wound up on uh, an episode of some WB show or another. Like, but she almost didn't need that. You know what I mean? She grew past that so fast. I wish you could see the like, tween dance arm cross move that I just made to show how she phoenixed out of the teen bobble for which she was uh, produced and became such a star so fast in a way that I think we haven't seen since then. Oh, no. It is like 
it is. I mean, I know people are going to be like, well, Mickey Mouse Club and whatever, but we're talking about the explosion. Yeah. Britney Spears, there was no leftover Britney Spears after Mickey Mouse Club. Had she faded into obscurity uh, like Nikki DeRoach or some of the other people who were on the show with them at that time, you wouldn't have cared. Yeah. Britney Spears was introduced to you in 1998. Don't lie. Yeah. And she was like an essential part of our lives by the calendar year following. Yes. And so we're talking about Britney today because, wow, that is 20 years. Like, it'll be the 20th anniversary of Baby One More Time in October, in six months. Um, And another reason why we're talking about it is because there have been reports, rumors, nothing substantiated, that her father is moving to end the conservatorship after... 10 years. So we're marking these things by a decade. Well, uh, and by of decades. course, you sent me the the new Kenzo campaign that yes. she uh, just came out with. So whether by design to commemorate uh, anniversaries, God, 1998 was a big year apparently for things that matter to us. Yeah. Uh, or because uh, things are happening again in her life. Um, there's a lot to talk about with Britney, right? When you talk about the conservatorship, of course, we're talking about the fact that for the last decade, for the last 10 years, her father has been um, in charge of all of the business decisions uh, that Brittany makes from the small to the large. So that's everything from her Vegas residency to uh, how much she spends on, you know, gas or personal items or whatever. It's all the reason we know this is because because it's a conservatorship, which is like a public role, it's all publicly accounted for. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. And it's her dad because he has a, you know, a vested interest mm-hmm. in caring for her, one thinks. And uh, I was also interested to know when I was reading up on this today, she also has a legal advocate who's separate from that whole maelstrom of people to make sure that she's not being exploited, to make sure it's not a situation where a parent is siphoning funds or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like a checks and balance on the check. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I think, again, because it's so public, that's really, uh, that's how we know that that's not happening, right? Like nobody maybe wants their parent to be messing in their finances when they are 30 seven years old, but I think we can be reasonably assured that it's nothing is too fishy that's going on because there are so many checks and balances. Right. And so I just want to go back to this timeline because the Kenzo campaign was announced and then all these rumors kicked up again. I mean, they kick up here and there, but this this time, the rumors seem to be gaining more traction than they have over the last few years. So the Kenzel campaign is launched. The week after is when all these rumors are coming around that Britney Spears' father, Jamie, is considering and moving to end the conservatorship. And so there is a direct link between this Kenzel campaign and whatever it is that this Kenzel campaign has done to suggest that, hey, everybody... Brittany may be ready and Jamie's ready. The enterprise is ready for her to begin taking control once again over her entire Brittany-ness. 
Um, so to link it, all kinds of connections here, to link it back to what we have been talking about the last two weeks, now a third week in a row, um, style, fashion, and business, it is this Kenzo campaign that really, even if this is an unfounded rumor, it is this Kenzo campaign that really did something for Britney in terms of maybe introducing an updated conversation about her. It's Britney headlining a major fashion label, a high-end fashion label for the first time. And then the relationship between us seeing her in that capacity and being more willing to or um, engaging in a conversation about the end of this conservatorship is where I find us is where what I find really interesting and where we find ourselves here in this in this conversation about Brittany at 37 and if there is another phase. I mean, I think there's definitely another phase. I think what's always been the case with Brittany is that the conservatorship was in place. Look, there was a lot of like unpleasantness. There were a lot of like, who are these weird hangers on, blah, 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 about 10 years ago. Uh, but Brittany has always maintained two things uh, since she was very young and in the past 10 years where this conservatorship has been in place. She's always maintained that her kids are the most important thing to her and that all she wants to do is sing and dance. That she is not somebody who is tired and wants to lie down. I think the thing that makes Britney interesting relative to maybe a lot of other stars that we've seen burn bright and then have a have a a crisis or whatever is that she wants to continue working that she really feeds off it. Um you know there's some evidence that doing things like the X factor where she was talking as opposed to performing was less attractive for her. Um was less exciting. So all of this is in service of getting to work some more. Uh, and Brittany, in fact, is going on tour this summer for the first time in years. She's not coming to Toronto, and I'm quite upset about it. I've never made it to the Vegas show, uh, but I would have liked to see her in concert. So the thing, though, about the idea of the Kenzo campaign lending itself to a new era of Brittany is I'm trying to put my finger on why. Because she doesn't need the money. She is wealthy beyond our wildest, wildest dreams. And interestingly, Kenzo, in my personal, like, kind of feeling, is it's a bit young. Like, it's not a super mature campaign. It's not like she signed on to, what was that line that Angelina Jolie used to always wear, like St. John? Yes, yeah, I think she's done St. John. She's now Guerlain. Right. But those are like... Angelina Jolie is the polar opposite, right? She's probably within five years of Britney's age, and she's always going older and grown up. And Kenzo seems relatively young to me, relatively youthful. So um, it's interesting that it speaks to to you, to a, a woman who's, again, in her late 30s, who's ready to reclaim her finances. By no means am I saying that, you know, being in a young campaign or anything of the kind means you shouldn't be in control or that, you know, I think everybody in the Britney camp acknowledges that the conservatorship, while not perfect, has been the best for her and her business enterprises up to this point. 
but it's an interesting crossover there. Um, what do you think it signifies about the new era of Britney? Well, I think, too, there, the strategy behind this is that you have to pick a brand for Britney that obviously fits. When we talked last week about um, who's a good fit for Louis Vuitton, who's a good fit for Chanel, I mean, listen, Britney plus Chanel would never have worked. Let's, can we? Not then, certainly. Yeah. And I don't even think now. Doreen St. Felix wrote a really great piece about Britney and Kenzo uh, this week. And it had to do with why this was such a good partnership. And it's because, and it's because Kenzo is high end, but also super, super fast. Like when we talk about fast fashion and Zara and H&M and Topshop and the turnover of the kinds of clothes that we see in those stores, Kenzo is that without the shitty quality. Like the zipper's not going to break on you and it's not going to start pilling after three wears. I wear like some Kenzo um, and mostly it's the sweatshirts. They're flashy, they're fun. Um, and that certainly speaks to Britney's style. Again, like we don't need to see Britney or like Britney's not going to be stepping out in like a tweed pantsuit, right? No, so, we don't want her to, right? Like no. in this iconic image that they released, the yeah. sort of image that's that's in the image that's synonymous with the campaign, um, she's still wearing a cropped sweatshirt that still shows a pierced navel with yes. like a uh, uh, with belly jewelry. Yes. And, you know, long after all of her contemporaries are like, this thing's infected. I'm taking it out. Uh, she still embodies that aesthetic. So I appreciate that very much, that they're not changing her into somebody else or trying to uh, make her into someone she's not. Well, what I love about the Doreen St. Felix piece, too, is that she talks about the denim. So we associate Britney through the ages, the last 20 years, my God, with a lot of denim. There's the low-rise jeans, <laughs> there's the denim dresses, denim mini skirts, and so there is a Kenzo outfit that she's wearing that is so Britney, that is all denim. It's a fucking, basically, a denim bikini, right? It's a denim, like it's denim underwear or whatever, boy shorts. Um, it's dark denim. And as Doreen St. Felix says in her piece, she's like, this is 100% a fabric that you associate with Britney Spears, but it's just done the Kenzo way this time, but without completely suffocating who Britney is. And instead of wearing it, and like, I mean, Doreen St. Felix is a great writer and clearly understands who Britney is. Instead of wearing the outfit, Britney is performing it. Well, what's so great about that is that Britney is performing it, um, but, you know, you. this is what's so much fun about having these conversations kind of off the cuff. One of the things in the St. Felix article that she points out is that Britney's never done a fashion campaign, except for like a small candies campaign. Uh, but Britney Spears has been many, many things, but she has never, ever changed her style or aesthetic. Mm -hmm. she's never, you've never gotten the impression that she has taken somebody's style advice. We never even saw her like go to the Oscars in a more uh, glammed up version of what she would ordinarily wear, right? Britney has been wearing Britney's style, like straight out of Britney. 
yes. for the last 20 years. Yes. And it's kind of making my heart swell a little bit because she has never compromised the way she looks for anybody. Um, she has been always on a theme. Look, is it my personal style? Not necessarily, mm-hmm. but it is so clearly not, she's so clearly not taking the advice of anybody else. And that goes back to the story of baby one more time, which everybody agrees is true, is that it was her idea to tie up the shirts yeah. and show the midriff and that whole look. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of brilliance really in that the Kenzo campaign is, as you say, it's done the Kenzo way, but there doesn't need to be any shift in who Brittany is to make it work. Right. And maybe that is the independence that you're talking about, right? That the choice now is being made to do things that are are positive in a, you know, in a career way or whatever, but without compromising a bit of who she is. There's no sense of trying to change, to grow up, to be somebody else. This is who she is, yo. Well, let's go there then. Let's let's deep dive into what this signifies. Um, to quote Doreen St. Felix in this piece, this is from the final paragraph. Uh, she writes, but in the photographs taken by Peter Lindbergh for Kenzo, Spears is once again at ease. Iconic in the sense that she looks like a copy, an idealized self. Photoshop has blurred and glazed her features, giving her a teenaged flush, making her face both foreign and familiar. The photos, which resemble tour promotion more than a fashion campaign, seem almost redemptive. Her abs are prominent like they used to be. She has a dancer's sure-footedness. Her belly, bu- her belly button ring glints. There, there you go, Duanna. The fairy makes an appearance too. So you mentioned the tour. Mm-hmm. 1998 to 2018, it is the 20th anniversary of the release of Baby One More Time. We have now all these rumors about the end of a conservatorship that are coming on the heels of this Kenzo campaign and this paragraph. What are we looking at then? In 2018, where does Britney fit in the landscape of pop superstardom? And if she were to take control or more control of her career, um, not re-entering the fray, because I would say that probably Britney left, no, I would say that probably Britney never left, but perhaps declaring herself once again in competition, perhaps at a time when Drake is the recording artist who is probably setting the curve um, with streaming and prioritizing singles over albums, um, with uh, uh, an artist, for example, like Justin Timberlake, who's stumbled a little bit out of the gate with his album, um, at a time when Adele and Taylor Swift are the only two people who can really move an album with those kinds of numbers. If Britney is re-entering competition, what does that look like? Who are we dealing with? I love this question so much. Um, I really love it. But as I was listening to you kind of list those people, I thought, but you haven't hit a Britney comparison yet. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Um, Drake uh, is, let's like be super simple. Like Drake is singles, as you just said, prioritizing singles over albums. 
Uh, Justin Timberlake has stumbled a little bit in his musical direction. Uh, Adele and Taylor Swift, you said, are the ones who can move albums, right? That's all. That was that was the basic yep. synthesis. What you didn't say and the place where Britney lives, and to me, the place where we don't even have to talk about competing mm-hmm. um, because she is her own competition, is Britney performs. I don't think it's ever really been about the music for Britney Spears, although she was and maybe still is a better singer than anybody gives her credit for. Um, but she is a dancer. She is a uh, like an illusionist a little bit, right? Like she's always been about the combination of the choreography and the hair flip and the look and the whatever uh, to feed from the audience in a very real way. Whereas, say, an Adele, uh, I believe is most at home in the pathos of the singing and the songwriting uh, and getting it out there. And the fact that the audiences react to it is great, but not... My point is, I think that audiences, live audiences, are the end goal for Britney Spears in a way that I don't think they are for... uh, for Taylor or for Justin, uh, tours are money makers, as we know. So I think tours are beneficial. But I think for Britney, the reason that Vegas was so special is because the audience was right there. And to her, the audience is the goal. As I said, I read two Britney books in the past week, uh, reread, and there's nothing in there about how grueling the tours were on her. There's nothing in there about how going to a new place every night, and the trials of that were so difficult. Uh, Even Beyonce, who is, to me, uh, somebody who enjoys performance as much and who puts as much work into it, has talked about how grueling it is and who also, Beyonce is, like, as interested in the message as in the medium, right? But for somebody who's interested, let's say, mostly in the medium, Britney has never complained about it. She's never said it's too much work, I'm too tired, I'm whatever. Her main complaints have always been about the paparazzi and the attention. All this to say, where does Britney go? I think Britney goes to Broadway. I think that, uh, you know, there may be a new album and there will be a couple of radio hits on it and hits that will probably not reach number one, but that will bring her back to a place of kind of current music, current prominence. But in order to keep tapping into that thing, which brings the audiences to you every night, and to do that thing where you don't really have to react to people's questions and you get to live kind of a normal life, I think Britney Spears becomes a Broadway diva. Shit, I was not expecting that. That is genius. Like, I did not think that you were building up to that and that just, like, slapped me in the face. But now that you've said it, I am like, yeah, I can see it. And I can see it because, as you say, what Vegas gave to her, that stabilization, was one stage, one home, everybody comes to her, and there's a routine. That's right. One Mm -hmm. show that you can perfect. Yeah. Night after night. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's singing and dancing and it allows for the grandness of what she knows how to do without, uh, without constantly being like, 
what's new, what's hot, mm-hmm. what's whatever. Uh, obviously, Broadway is as subject to trends as anything else, but there's less of an emphasis on needing to be young and sexy in mm-hmm. the way that music is a constant churn box, right? Yeah. Um, and as you say, the game has changed. Albums don't really sell in the same way. Um, I think about Britney in the same breath as Deborah Cox, who, you know, is a Canadian singer who has toured a lot with Aida and uh, The Bodyguard and productions like that. I think about Sunset Boulevard, about which is a musical about a, a fading, aging movie star. And I think those are really, really strong places for Britney to go. Uh, someday she will not be able to dance as well as she does now. Uh, again, I haven't seen the Vegas show, so I don't know the extent to which that's her her strength still. But Broadway allows for performance and dancing without needing it to be at a a really almost frenetically high level. Let's imagine this, though, because the Vegas schedule, having sort of structured her and stabilized her for a few years, wasn't like eight performances a week, which is, isn't that the Broadway, isn't that the Broadway expectation? Yes and no. Um, Broadway is, uh, yeah, from Tuesday to Saturday, there are Six uh, there from Tuesday to Saturday, there are performances every night, and then two show days on Wednesdays and Saturdays when there's a matinee. That said, uh, everybody knows how grueling that is. Everybody knows that at a certain point, if you're the lead, your understudy is going to be there to take that on for you. Um, so it's a five day a week, which is not that different from a Vegas schedule. I don't know how many shows a week she was doing in Vegas, not that. Like sometimes, you know, remember the Vegas schedule is structured so that, you know, they, let's say, I mean, I don't know this exact, but they whip off, uh, let's say two weeks worth of shows and then there's a big break. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you could do that on Broadway. You could spend a month rehearsing in a very nine to five kind of way Yeah. for uh, three weeks of shows. And again, that's physically demanding, but it's you're basically at work from three in the afternoon till about 11 at night. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a full day, but it allows you to have a schedule and a life and a predictability and then take time off. You know, not everybody does a Broadway show for a year. That is mostly about people whose shows are huge and new and phenomenons and they stick around until kind of the Tony Awards and then their contracts usually finish. Right. She's not an up and coming young actor. She can say whatever she wants. Right. And then move to a new show or have a break or, you know, spend some time with her kids. What was Bette Midler's schedule for Hello, Dolly? How long did she do it for? Uh, It wound up being under a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, It uh, opened give or take previews, roughly in April of 2017. And she, her last performance was January 14th of this year, 2018. Um, and that was a revival. Hello, Dolly hadn't been on Broadway for decades. So that was also a reimagining of the show, mm-hmm. of a this, of a that. And I love that you brought up Bette Midler because uh, obviously she's a lot older than Britney Spears is, but also uh, her daughter is grown up. This is something that we don't need to see Britney do next year. Mm-hmm. But 
in the article in the New Yorker that you referenced, the Doreen St. Felix article, she talks about how her sons uh, are 11 and 13 and do they want to see their mother like in a midriff bearing top or whatever. But we keep talking about Brittany wanting a schedule that allows for her to see her kids. But in five to seven years time, when this would be a really skilled move for her, she's not going to be rushing home to do bedtime. She's not rushing home to do bedtime now. You know, they are going to be in college or living their lives or whatever. And that's when a schedule like this could be extremely, extremely beneficial for her and bringing her what she wants most, which is the audience reinforcement, the performance without the headaches of songwriting in Sweden or having to worry about album sales. I've been thinking a lot about Britney lately because over the last, let's call it six months, especially on her social media, she's been sharing snippets of herself and it seems like she has really come into a place of self-comfort and showing and therefore showing more personality again, right? For a while, there was a wall. Oh, yeah. It was, there was a very small segment of things that you could see uh, that related to any part of her life, really. Yeah. And then, yes. And, and because of that, I had a lot of suspicion. Um, you know, prior to this year, let's call it the last 12 months or so, um, you know, even the boyfriends she was with seemed hired, Um, There was that story, the last guy that she was with before, um, maybe two boyfriends ago, uh, there was a story about how, where he worked and um, there was some, like, some suggestion that there was, and there was some suggestion that it was like a setup, that it was engineered. Do you mean Jason Trawick, the agent? No, after Jason Trawick and... I don't remember his name and I don't think it's necessary. Like, no, that's so, fine. That's fine. Um, just... So it seemed, there seemed to be a suggestion that it was engineered, that her people had had something to do with it, that there was a lot of babysitting involved. And so I have always written, especially in the last five years or so, my suspicion about what Brittany Incorporated was doing behind the scenes to manage – Britney's career, but also make sure that Britney's career was profitable for Britney Incorporated and all the people involved in that. And I always questioned whether or not it was what Britney herself would have wanted. Because for a time, there were things that she would say, like, I just want to go back to Louisiana and just have babies and be on a farm. And so I think that it may be time to rethink that simply because this iteration of Britney that we have seen over the last year seems to be what she has been sending out herself. Like that wall, not that it's crumbling. I mean, Britney still exists behind a wall and probably should, but that she is starting to once in a while open a window That is legitimately her opening the window in the tower saying, hey, what's up? This is actually me and I'm okay back here. And I'm actually more than okay. I'm pretty happy. I'm healthy, really healthy. And I think I'm figuring it out. And I'm kind of ready to show you more about what I've been figuring out over the last few years. 
And that has, has led me, in, to go back to my point, I have been rethinking how to think Britney. Mm-hmm. And this last month with Kenzo and all these rumors, legitimate or not, about whether or not she, what moves she, she'll be making and the upcoming tour. And we've got this big anniversary coming up. Like I am now looking forward to the approach of when we're going to get the think pieces of we're commemorating baby one more time, 20 years of it. What has happened since then? How the landscape of celebrity and pop superstardom has changed since then? Um, what would pop superstardom be like without Britney? How many people have learned from Britney? Probably the people around Justin Bieber have learned from Britney. 100%. Right? Like, Justin Bieber seems to be in a better place lately. I mean, at the very least, what I have said, for all the naysayers what I've said. And for all the naysayers, and I know, I know that there's an eye roll that accompanies Justin Bieber. What I will say about Justin Bieber of late is that he's not on the circuit. Like you're not seeing him clubbing. Like when you do see him paparazzi, he's, he's playing hockey and he's going to soul cycle. And there's something to be said about the fact that I don't, Justin Bieber has not been a nighttime superstar in a long time. And when he goes out at night, it's to church. And we can have a side conversation about what this church is, I know, but I do think that the people who are managing Justin Bieber and working on Justin Bieber have certainly looked in and checked in on that Britney Spears playbook and adjusted accordingly. Well, here's the thing about everything that you just said, and I agree with all of it. Um, You talked about the times when there have been rumors that maybe the conservatorship was going to end or so forth. Um, Brittany herself tried to end it as early as, I think, t- early 2010. And the judge at that time said, the thing is, you're doing exponentially better than you were. Uh, so I choose not to end it because she sort of said, like, here's all my evidence uh, about why we should end it. I'm doing so much better. And he's like, yeah. And the conservatorship was in place. And you talk about Justin playing hockey and so forth, and I feel as though those two things are really linked. You can't rush it, and maybe it has to do with when you become a superstar or not, but nobody's happy until they become themselves, right? Like, that's just a a blanket statement. You have to be comfortable being yourself. And if she's doing better, and if she's gearing up to do a tour that'll make her happy and anniversaries that'll make her happy. I kind of don't care if we don't end the conservatorship. Everybody wants to feel like somebody's an independent woman who takes care of themselves and blah, blah, blah. But if she's happy and if she's making choices that make her happy and if she's in a position to have a career that makes her happy and part of that is having, you know, uh, having a, a somebody who oversees the things that stress her out to talk about or places where she's had pitfalls, I really don't care. I think that if it benefits her to live her life that way, we're kind of beyond the point where we can be like, oh, I hope she gets it back someday. Because I think what we've seen is that that's not ultimately what's important to her. Yeah. And I think that ultimately what's important in a big, big picture sense, we're talking about the influence of Britney and the lessons to be learned from Britney um, and the conversations to be had out of Britney. Like when we look back in, or when historians look back on entertainment and superstardom and celebrity in 50 years, you can't not talk about Britney. No. In so many different ways, as you said, 
that overnight success, what she was able to do in such a short time, the effect that she had on other artists. But from a social perspective, I do think that this is also a case study on a conversation that all of us have had to confront within ourselves about mental health. Listen, if I look back on what I was writing and saying about Brittany, it was irresponsible and it was coming from a place where mental health was not, um, and it was coming from a place where we didn't understand mental health or a lot of us didn't understand mental health the way we do now. And that was a lesson that I, you know, I wish I had learned earlier. And I think that that's a lesson that um, many people are still learning. And it's a lesson that people have been trying to shout at us for many, many years about mental health. So when we go back to, you know, so when we go back to the thesis of my career and gossip and its value and celebrity and its value and the conversations and the learnings that we can have out of celebrity, was it unavoidable? Probably. Like there are regrettable things and upsetting things that everyone, me included, have said about Britney Spears, but I still maintain that it was probably unavoidable because of how big she was and how public those meltdowns were and how we were all visualizing it. It was impossible to turn away from it. I wonder if it was impossible to cover it. And yet, hopefully from it, there has been a radical change in our understanding of what happens to anyone struggling with mental health, but also what this business does to youth. To youth and to almost anyone, I would say, who's not prepared for it, uh, without opening ourselves up to a third hour of the podcast, uh, Brittany and those who chronicle her career have long compared her to Princess Diana. And there are more than just surface comparisons there in the person who was asked to always be happy and asked to never have problems in public. What I love about what you're saying is that even if she never says it, and Brittany doesn't, she's not going to have a, a long revelatory tell-all interview. I think we've seen that even when she's feeling fine, those don't benefit her. But she is, as she works, as she continues to have successes, and as we look down the barrel of the 20th anniversary, she is a, a poster child for resilience. And she is an advertisement for uh, how to have... Uh, struggles with mental health is also to know that they're not a, they're not a, a lifelong detriment, that there's something that you can work through as publicly as hers may have been and come to a place where you're much better and stronger and more confident in yourself. And I love the idea that that too is what Brittany takes forward to the next phase of her career, that she is an unspoken, uh, mantle for that. She's not going to call herself that. She's no. never going to say that. But that's one of the many totems when you say people look back. She's also going to be the totem for uh, not just reinvention, which is the way we used to talk about kind of her godmother Madonna, but uh, kind of resurrection after self-care. And that's a really exciting place to be. And that wraps up our show. Um. 
90s reflection edition, I guess. Yeah, this was like a nostalgia edition. I'm very much here for it, and I'm very excited to see how it reflects going forward. Uh, Tell us what you think. Hit us up with your emails, your tweets, your complaints. We love them all. And I haven't even cleared this with you, Duanna, but hopefully you'll agree with my homework assignment for everybody. We did have on our potential list for discussion two topics, internships and Shawn Mendes. Internships uh, in the sense of Hollywood internships being the one of the accepted ways into the business with all the good and bad that entails. And Sean Mendez, because he is going to be doing a one week residency on James Corden, the late, late show. Um, and you can call that an internship, certainly. So for the next episode, send us your thoughts on internships, send us your um, experiences being an intern. Send us your experiences working with interns. Send us your thoughts on Sean Mendez because I know you have them. Um, and given... because maybe we're the last two people who don't have opinions on Sean Mendez, so you have an opportunity to shape us going forward. So let us know. We would like to read some of your emails on the next show about internships and Sean Mendez. Uh, so we look forward to reading your comments and your tweets. Um, and we will be back next week. But in the meantime, check us out on Google, iTunes, Spotify. Leave us your comments. Work hard. Bye. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.